when pestilence swept through the whole known world and notably the Roman Empire and of necessity leaving a trail of desolation in its wake. These words were written by Procopius of Caesarea, a 6th century scholar during a calamity which saw the death of one-fifth of the population of that great city of Constantinople. But what really happened during and after this event named for the emperor of the time? Hello, my name is Eva, and today and next time we shall be delving into the onset and aftermath of the Justinian plague. Right off the bat, I'd like to apologize for my voice. I'm in the midst of what seems to be a never-ending flu, which has derived me of my voice for a little bit. So sorry for the husky tones. Anyway, back to the history of the day. By the first half of the 6th century, Constantinople was the biggest city of the West, with an estimated population of half a million citizens. It was protected by the, already at the time, famed double walls and near-impassable waters, and had since 527 been ruled by the Emperor Justinian and his Empress Theodora, arguably one of the best-remembered power couples of the Eastern Roman Empire. Of course, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476, Constantinople was the new Rome, and the Byzantine Empire, as we know it, was really the only existing Roman Empire. And the city of Constantinople was by this time a thriving metropolis with extensive trading routes across the Mediterranean, trading southwards to Roman Egypt, Egypt, of course, having become a province of Rome since the death of Cleopatra in 30 BCE. Constantinople also traded eastwards towards China, as well as westwards towards Gaul, with whom they traded and fought in equal measure. Now those of you familiar with historical plagues will already have guessed why I started by mentioning the varied trading networks of Constantinople, for it was by trading vessels that the plague came to the city in 541. But from where I shall discuss later on, and in the next episode, pick through the uncertain evidence left behind. What is certain, though, is that during the early months of 541, citizens of the port city of Pelusium in Roman Egypt began to fall ill with a terrible fever, and this initial symptom was quickly followed by the development of painful bulbous under the armpits and on the body, with stomach pains, necrosis of the extremities, and death following in many instances. It hit all stations of life, but was particularly virulent around the harbour and the great granaries of the city. And it was from the granaries that terror struck, for it was here that the brown rats of Roman Egypt lived a bountiful life on the grain. Now, rats near the grain is bad enough, 
But these rats were infected by a certain parasite-bearing flea, which sucked on the rat's blood and left a bacteria behind, a bacteria we now know as Yersinia pestis. It was not until 1894 that scientists successfully identified the bacteria, Yersinia pestis, the bacteria which ravaged Constantinople and which in the mid-14th century caused the Black Death. As mentioned, the bacteria was hosted by fleas, which in turn lived on rats. And when the rat died, the flea would jump onto another victim. And in the case of the plague, the other victim would be a human. And so it was that in the latter months of 541, the plague made its way on grain ships from Pelissium to Alexandria and onwards to Constantinople. From Constantinople's harbour, it was spread by sailors visiting taverns, by grain tellers receiving their wares, by message boys running across the city, and by citizens buying grain. First to be afflicted were those with business outside their homes, fathers, brothers, servants, traders and workers. They, in turn, as they came home, passed the pestilence on to mothers, daughters and children. Scholars of the age recorded a myriad of symptoms, so many, in fact, that today it is believed that some of those who died may have succumbed to otherwise curable illnesses which were simply overlooked or ignored as the all-encompassing pestilence raged. The true plague victims suffered from an onset of high fever, as previously mentioned, and some were described to have developed a strange fatigue. Others developed a feeble mind, dementia-like symptoms, while others still fell into a stupor from which they never awoke. The physicians of the time recognised the sickness as deadly, but their response can only be described as a little too late and often a little too deadly. Communal prayers in the city's churches were called, something we today might view as super-spreader events. Bloodletting was prescribed, which would not only have let the bacteria out into the open, but severely weakened the sufferer and infected the one performing the bloodletting. Isolation was recommended, yet this was workable only for those with the means to isolate, that is to say, with a residence large enough in which to isolate, or a villa far away from the city. A few physicians, such as John of Alexandria, did become medically proficient in diagnosing early signs of the sickness and it is from his writings, as well as a few others, that we today can confirm that it was indeed plague which ravaged Constantinople. But it is also telling that there was a focus on prognosis and diagnosis, the ancient focal points of medicine, but there was a dearth when it came to effective treatment. And crucially, though the Byzantine physicians were highly trained, they were unaccustomed to the plague, and access to these physicians was restricted to those who could afford them, namely the nobility. So, in effect, 
traditional remedies sold by laymen were much in demand. Powders blessed by a saint or amulets sworn by by healers were sold in record numbers. Hospitals did exist in Constantinople at this time and they had the means to quarantine. But as the sick slept cheek by jowl, infection was very high in these areas. Plague sufferers were treated in various ways, cold water baths or with tinctures of eggshells, flower petals and warm ale, said to purify the innards. Another treatment which became well used at the height of the plague, which was around 542, was to inflict an open wound on a patient with the belief that the disease might seep out or pass out of the body through this open wound, which was then treated with resin and honey and sometimes human excrement. But there was no concerted state or imperial effort to prevent or cull the plague. The emperor's response was to press on with his military campaigns, thinking victory would bless the city and turn God's merciful eye on its suffering citizens. But such action did not save lives, and indeed the scholar Procobius attributed the calamity of the plague to Justinian's selfish and incompetent rule. But much more on that in the next episode. Several contemporary scholars noted that it was left to the church to bury the dead and give such relief as they could, though the dead piled up in the densely populated urban city with men too few or too weak to carry them. According to some contemporary historians, between 5,000 and 10,000 people were dying each day of the plague. However, these numbers have been continually debated, contested and defended throughout history. But in the year 542, the emperor himself fell ill and the citizens of Constantinople waited with bated breath, fearing what his illness and probable death might mean for their own safety. For there were enemies at the gate and these enemies saw an opportunity to strike at a weakened empire. So, next time, the aftermath of the plague. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Restless Times in History, as it really does help this podcast being seen. Until next time, I have been Eva. And thanks so much for listening.